0: Looking for the latest perspectives to help simplify changing market conditions? Go to Nationwide, one of America's largest financial services companies. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation. FINRA member. Columbus, Ohio. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. This is
1: the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with Tom Keane and Jonathan Farrow. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business app.
2: From a beautiful Newport Beach, California, I'm Jonathan Farrow. PIMCO, publishing its Secular Outlook, The Aftershock Economy, writing, quote, We see a window to step in as a senior lender in areas once occupied by regional banks, such as consumer lending, mortgage credit, and various forms of asset-based finance. I'm very pleased to say that we can have that conversation now with the man himself. The boss, PIMCO CEO, Manny Roman. Manny, good morning to Thanks for having us. Good morning, Jonathan. Nice to see you. That quote feels like your kind of language. We're going to step in. My first thought when I read that was, why don't you just buy a bank? There's many banks on (laughs) sale right now. Why don't you just buy a bank?
3: Well, I think there are going to be many assets to buy. And maybe the best way I have to describe it is banks are going to be tight for capital. And when they're tight for capital, they have two ways of solving the problem. They can either raise more capital or they can sell assets. And the most likely scenario is there will be assets to sell in area where we have a big footprint, mortgages, commercial real estate, bonds, municipal bonds. Dan said that earlier today that he was very keen on mortgages. There'll be mortgages to sell, and we'll be there to step in and
2: try to buy them. Are you looking at buying a franchise to do that, or is that just something that happens this organically? This is something that we've
3: built over the past 20 years, and you know, there's good news and bad news when you have a tougher economic cycle. I think the, the better news is that the expected return goes up and there are significant block of assets to sell. You know, it could be, for example, equipment loans. You know, one of the banks who was very big in equipment loans is out of business. All of a sudden, there's going to be a lot for us to do.
2: I hear this from other people, too. I hear Apollo say banks are going to step back, we're going to step back in. How competitive is this going to be? Can you give me some size and it scope of how big the pie is going to be?
3: It is going to be competitive because the seller has a fiduciary duty and there will be enough for some of us to do a lot and put money to work and be patient and wait for the right opportunity to do so. And I think, I think the cycle is usually long, and so there's no rush to put money to work. There is a very disciplined and systematic way to look at the opportunity, and some will look better than the other. It may very well be that the single best asset turns out to be real estate where we have a big footprint, or it may very well be that it turns out to be commercial real estate and, you know, mortgages in this whole segment.
2: Commercial real estate is something you've brought up and I've heard it from Dan. I spoke to Mark about it just moments ago. Should I be worried about commercial real estate? Can you talk me, just take me into the halls of this place, this building. Have you all sat around a table, gone through every single portfolio and thought about what you don't want exposure to right now related to this one particular sector?
3: Well, I think we have and I think, I think we've seen the playbook before and it is everything else being equal, a slow cycle. So the banks will look at their portfolio and slowly but surely mark their books. I think you have a microstructure of the commercial real estate market, which is quite different, depending on the city, depending on the places. Some places are clearly tested, some of them are doing just fine. I mean, you can look at Austin, for example, you're hard-pressed to find an empty office in Austin and the overall trend is going to be that people somehow come back to work one way or the other. But there's a transition period where for sure there will be distressed seller and people who have the wrong financing. And I think the financing part is really, really important because it's one of the segments where we're very involved and people have borrowed short-term In the past, with very low rates, all of a sudden the financing is expiring, spreads are higher, and of course, rates are much higher. And so they will need to address the situation either
2: by selling or by refunding at more attractive terms for us. Clearly, this business is going to change compared to what it was several decades ago. We've had a multi-decade bond bull market. Most people assume that's now over based on the last 12 (laughs) months. Can you tell me how this business will be different with that in mind? What you need to position for now versus what this firm was positioned for in the previous several decades?
3: Well, the very big change, and Dan mentioned this before, is generative AI and how technology can change your business. And think, for example, about, about the real estate market. We can hire 100 people to go from city to city and kind of look at every single lease or every single property, or we can use technology to give us a better grasp of where the alpha is and where we think the opportunity is. When we think about communication with clients, we can invest significantly in generative AI and actually give a better risk report, better customized report to clients, and so on and so forth. And I think it's incredibly exciting. I see the work that we do with OpenAI and Microsoft as important as the birth of the Internet. I mean, Le- it, is, it is that. It well, you is think that. it's that powerful? It is that powerful, and it will change your job also. Change it your will... job too, potentially. <laughs> yeah, no, no, of course, of course. I mean, I mean, in a good way. I think it will make us more, more productive.
2: And I think that's a really, really good thing. Is that a challenge to your secular outlook? I they think they
3: on a super-secular super basis, everything else being equal, I think it means rates are lower. But it also, I think you should say that with a humongous amount of humble pie, in a sense that the, that the dispersion of events is going to be very big. And we don't know what we don't know. And it's easy for me to make prediction about what will happen 10 years from that. Chances are that I'd be very wrong.
2: Let's measure success, AUM. Over the last 10 years, and let's go back a decade. PIMCO was at about $2 trillion AUM, not too far away from the likes of BlackRock. BlackRock's AUM since then has has more than doubled. The AUM here is Steady. steady, with some volatility, tons of volatility along the way, but it's basically unchanged in the last decade. What do you think that reflects? It reflects
3: the decision we made, is that we try to be very focused and do one thing and do it very well. And I think we went through a period of time where maybe fixed income wasn't as attractive as it is right now. And we, we have the view that if we perform, if we significantly beat the passive benchmark, if we do better than our peers, they will come. And we don't measure our success by the amount of assets we, we have. We measure our success by the returns we give to our investors in what is a very competitive market. And so, and so, and so the, the, the real sin of asset manager is to try to be bigger for the sake of being bigger because of economy of scale. We so don't do not, that. So it's not a goal, just to be clear. It's not a goal. It's not a goal We're here to perform with the money we've been entrusted, and if we do a good job, we'll be fine.
2: Well, let's talk about that good job. There have been a couple of difficulties. I want to talk about one specific name, which is Columbia Property Trust. What do I need to know about that? What happened? Can you just give me a better idea of what happened there? Well, I think I think for obvious reasons we don't specifically comment on on
3: names, but of course we have a big portfolio of assets across the globe, and when you have a recession, some are going to be doing less well, and we're going to work on trying to bet to get the best possible outcome, and. The reality of fund management is you have, at any point in time, things doing great and things doing
2: less great, and, and we focus on the one doing less, less great and making sure we have the best possible outcome. So is that just a reflection of being so big that you're across everything, or was that a canary in the coal mine on a certain issue at a certain time?
3: No, I think it's a reflection of us having a diverse portfolio. And I think you heard uh, one of my uh, competitor at Milken saying that very... Yeah. Uh, well, saying that when you have a big real estate portfolio at any point in time, not everything is going to do great. And I think we're willing to do that
2: as long as the net result for our investors is going to be the right one. There's and I one, think that's what matters. One last issue that we need to discuss as well. And I understand that perhaps you can't offer a great degree of clarity and detail because of litigation issues. But you know what name's going to come up in conversation now, Credit Suisse. Now, I just wonder from your perspective, the future of the AT1 market, contingent convertibles after the events of the last couple of months? As a firm, and if you don't want to talk directly about that institution, we don't have to, but as a firm, have you rethought about that particular class of securities? Well, the banks, the banks, especially in
3: Europe, have a big need to issue AT1 as a way to raise enough equity to pass the stress test. And so there needs to be clear rule of engagement from both the banks and the regulator, and you've seen in the recent months the Bank of England and the ECB being incredibly vocal about what they think the rules of the game are and what a well-functioning market has to offer to make it attractive for investors to participate. And if the rules of the game are attractive and the price is right, You'll see plenty of people coming into this market, and PIMCO will be one of them. And if the rules of the games are biased or unclear or at the expense of investors, then maybe we'll decide to step out of it. Do you think they're biased and unclear now? Depends on the jurisdiction. We have welcomed the comments made by the ECB and the Bank of England.
2: Manny, it's good to
3: see you. It's good to see you, Thank you Jonathan. for hosting
2: us. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. We've got to do this again next year as well. Manny Ryman there, the Pin PIMCO.
0: Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions. So more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINREMember, Columbus, Ohio.
4: Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time.
1: Julian Emanuel, Chief Equity Derivatives and Quant Strategist at Evercore ISA, for the ISI for the hour. And this comes at a time when we are seeing this 20% potential gain on the S&P since the lows that we saw in October. Is this rally real?
5: We think it is actually. We don't want to put the label bull market on it, okay? Because, frankly, our base case is that sometime in the next 12 to 18 months, you're going to have a recession, which means you're going to have a sizable pullback. But this is a cyclical rally where we think the, the hallmark of the last week or so is a broadening of participation.
1: What is it about the labels? You don't want to call it a bull market. You don't want to call it a pause. You want to hold, call it a skip. Like, why does it matter?
5: Well, it, it matters a lot. If you go back to the 0002 tech- bubble burst bear market, you had several rallies of 40 and 50% in the NASDAQ before you made the final bottom. It, It is one of those things where rather than labeling, you have to think about how you want to think about the long term as either an individual investor or an active manager. And frankly, this is one of these times where those considerations are a bit different. Is this a fun time? It's a tough time, but look, it, it, at the end, it, 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 we're happier when equities go up, I think. We're
1: seeing also a lot of potential risks on sort of a, a bigger picture scale, whether it's what we saw over in Ukraine with that dam bursting and what it's doing, some of these concerns about an escalating war there, or if it's ratcheting up of tensions uh, in China between the U.S. and China. How much are you looking at potential tail risks, or do you think that that's what's dampened some of the valuations at this point that sort of set up for what you're talking about?
5: It's definitely dampened the valuations, and and this, again, the period we believe we're entering is one of those times where, despite those risks, we do think we're going to see a little bit of multiple expansion, uh, which is a bit counterintuitive. But frankly, what it does, and again, going back to, to our uh, options expertise, the VIX with a 14 handle is absolutely fabulous in terms of uh, protecting either downside risk or for some who are underperforming and may get pulled into a chase, upside risks. So
1: we're kind of bearing the lead here. On Sunday, you made a pretty big move. You upgraded, you increased your expectation for the S&P to 44.50, and potentially you might see that as soon as July. Explain.
5: That's the hallmark of a momentum market, and I think look clearly the Nasdaq has been in a momentum market essentially since the end of March, uh, and for us the last week or so uh, is encouraging because the S and P broadly has joined with that in its clear move above the 4,200 level, which had been basically six or seven months uh, versus of resistance. We're actually starting to see a little bit of broadening into the small caps, which is very encouraging, uh, but. Frankly, frankly, again, this is an environment where uh, the momentum takes on a life of its own. And that's also a function of the fact that if you look at it, sentiment, whether you're measuring it in terms of the stock market or the economy, or again, thinking about risk is incredibly, incredibly poor. And yet at the same time, we're seeing data that says there's a chance that this recession gets pushed out. It keeps getting pushed out. It may end up getting pushed out to 24.
1: And right now we're seeing uh, basically a range-bound market ahead of yet another day of quiet period for the Federal Reserve. But anything but when it comes to some of the international fluctuations, you see about a tenth of a percent decline on the S&P, 4275, still on the 4,300 watch. We didn't quite get there. Ongoing weakness over in the euro, but it's basically been around 106.8 uh, for quite a while with a bit of a stronger dollar. And 10-year yields lower just a touch after those ISI uh, ISM surveys. Services data that came out yesterday kind of disappointing even though still an expansion crude a little bit off earlier lows I want to note I said John's on the beach. He's actually in Newport Beach. He's hosting the Open from PIMCO's headquarters, which is the reason why he ditched me, along with Tom. He'll be speaking with CEO Emmanuel Roman, uh, CIO Dan Iveson, and former Fed Vice Chair Rich Clarida, who's their uh, head economic consultant there at PIMCO. That's all coming up today, starting at 9 a.m. Eastern. Today, annual shareholder meetings will happen for Zillow, Urban Outfitters, Palantir, and freeport mcmoran I say this because we actually saw some really interesting guidance out of Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company basically downward, re, downwardly revising some of their expectations. You're seeing shares off today. So it's sort of interesting to see uh, some of the commentary coming out of these meetings at a time of such fluctuation. And today, I know that you love talking politics, Julian, so I really wanted to get you uh, on this. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie is expected to jump into the race to become Republican candidate for president. He has been called in one New York Times article the Trump slayer, people saying he has no chance to win, but his complete objective is to act as an attack dog on the stage in debates with the former President Trump. A pretty crowded field in the Republican race, potentially 12 candidates by July.
5: Well, you do wonder if Governor Christie is going to announce with a pair of Everlast boxing gloves on, on his hands.
1: Essentially, yes.
5: N- no question about it. I- I look, it, this is healthy. I- at least I think you can call it healthy. Let's see what happens. My question is, and, and hopefully we'll have someone help us answer it, is, you know, who among the field, aside from Trump and DeSantis, could potentially rise to sort of create a three-way race? That, the, that's the, the big question.
1: And a lot of people are looking down to Virginia, potentially, for that. And we will get into that later. I do want to get to what we heard over uh, in China, a recommendation that state-owned banks start to reduce their deposit rates to encourage lending and to uh, increase their margins. Joining us now is Bloomberg's Tom McKenzie, who covered China for more than a decade. Uh, He's in London. Tom, what do you make of this? And also, what do you make of the fact that it's not a mandate, it's a recommendation?
6: Yeah, there's a fine line between a mandate and a recommendation when it comes to official policies out of Beijing when they lean on those state banks, uh, of course. But it builds on what we were talking about last week, Lisa, around the measures being put in place, at least the proposals being discussed, according to Bloomberg reporting, to kind of shore up the real estate market. Now you have more piecemeal efforts to try and put a floor under the growth that has come through from China, less strong, of course, than many had expected. So leaning on the banks to reduce those deposit rates, it means that the banks can then look to look lower the loan rates and provide more liquidity. We did see loans, new yuan loans, that credit impulse came through in the first quarter but then it dropped on April and clearly there was concern about the fact that there wasn't that traction going forward in terms of liquidity and that demand for loans. Households, businesses, they're shoring up their balance sheets, households are paying down their mortgages. The question really is, is there the demand, even as it becomes easier to take out a loan and to access that liquidity, is there really the demand to kind of tap into that and then support the economy?
1: On one hand, this is kind of stimulus light, and that's positive potentially for growth. On the other hand, this indicates that perhaps the Chinese Communist Party sees a bigger problem than they're letting on. Which is it?
6: Well, it's interesting. I was speaking to Hao Hong, who was formerly at Bocom, a really respected strategist there. And he said, look, this seems to me like a government that's running out of ideas. Bloomberg Economics, uh, they now view the chances of a benchmark rate cut. So for the one-year and the five-year medium-term lending facilities, they expect those to be reduced possibly as early as the middle of June, but there's a debate about that. Jones-Lang LaSalle economists there say they actually think this action to lean on the banks to reduce deposit rates and therefore give them the scope to reduce loan rates, that that probably pushes back a benchmark rate cut for the PBOC. By the way, for the context, they've cut just 50 basis points, just half a percent since the start of the pandemic in 2020. So they do have that dry powder, but again they have this massive debt pile, and there's that concern, of course, in terms of just adding to that if they go with a broad benchmark cut. But it's certainly something that now the Bloomberg economics team thinks is, is possibly likely mid-June.
1: Tom McKenzie, thank you so much of Bloomberg joining us from London. Julian Emanuel of Evercore ISI here with me for the hour. What do you make of what's going on in China and the fact that the growth is sort of running out of steam to such a degree? Do you feel like a lot of that story has been priced in and is really on the wane?
5: So we actually think that you're, it's the bumpy path to a more sustainable number. It's not 6% or north of 6%, but it may settle in uh, towards 5%. The issue here is, is a couple of things. First off, the way that China wants and will likely grow is unlike the last 20 years. We are you're making the transition to a domestic consumer-led economy. And, and the issue is, is that you know, you've had a second COVID wave over the last five or six weeks. And it's hard to say, I think, right now just how much of a dampening effect uh, that has. But uh, you know, I, I, in hearing the suggestion that banks reduce their rates, I'm reminded of that phrase, moral suasion, that uh, I suspect you'll get a degree greater of moral suasion uh, if things don't pick up. And obviously, the government is very, very in tune uh, with the pulse.
1: The beatings will continue until morale improves a bit of that. <laughs> I mean, there is this question, though, going forward about how much of a tailwind or a headwind China will be. And as you talk about upgrading your forecast for U.S. equities, do you see U.S. as sort of being, I don't want to say a haven, but a new sort of spot of focus after everyone was looking international for the first half of the year?
5: Well, it, again, 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 it it is a mixed bag because if you look at some of the consumer-focused names selling into China, they have sold off in in the last month, even as the rest of the market has stabilized and and obviously parts of it have rallied quite strongly. And that tells you that it it is an open question. The one thing that does seem clear is that this whole idea that China is going to be this very discreet uh, um, reason for uh, inflation to take another leg higher. That we don't subscribe to.
1: Every morning in your morning meetings, what do they seem like? Do people kind of sit around and they're like, well, it's the same kind of waiting game. We're not sure. But today we see more gains. <laughs> I mean, is it sort of a momentum kind of discussion?
5: Well, it is. But and again, when you think about it, Ed Hyman uh, has been absolutely on the forefront of the view that inflation is going to come in faster than people expect. Now, the last month or two, it's it's been a little bit choppier. And we look ahead to next week. We think that's likely to be a sign.
1: We certainly saw that from the ECB and their consumer inflation uh, release that they put out today. Julian Emanuel, Chief Equity Derivatives and Quant Strategist at Evercore ISA. Our next guest has been talking about an earnings recession. He's also been talking about how you could see a soft landing, and yet you could also see companies really have to ratchet back what their profits are going to be. It's Andrew Sheets, chief cross-asset strategist at Morgan Stanley. Wonderful uh, to have you on. Let's just start first in your thoughts on what Neil was talking about earlier.
7: Well, look, I, I do think that we should acknowledge this is an unusual time in markets. And, and, and again, I think of that opening clip showed You know, we have some of the highest core inflation since the 80s. We have the most inverted yield curve in the US in 40 years, in in Germany in in, in 30 years. We have, you know, one of the lowest unemployment rates we've seen in the US since the 1960s. So we're we're dealing, investors are dealing with some unusual data. You know, our view is that that the economy is going to slow in the US and Europe in the second half of the year, that the full effect of tightening has not yet been felt by the economy, but that tightening will continue to, to play out. And that even if you don't get a recession, the effect of slowing growth effect, uh, especially the effect of slowing nominal GDP is going to be bad for operating leverage, is going to put some pressure on earnings and mean that current expectations for earnings growth, we think, are are still high for this year, which creates some some near-term downside. Now, I think as you look further out, the picture looks a little bit better, but, but near-term, I think the market still has to get through a number of, of key challenges.
1: Andrew, you just put out a report talking about uh, S&P earnings declining about 16% through the end of this year. What have been some of the responses that you've gotten? How have you explained why you see that, even though people have been revising upwards, some of those earnings? expectations
7: yeah so I think investors are, are skeptical uh, of that sort of earnings move which is which is understandable it's a it's a below consensus estimate so the the consensus is understandably higher but also I think you have investors who say look you you've had economic data that's held up okay so far you've, you've had very good performance from some of the largest companies in the market and so that is indicative of, of investors being more optimistic that earnings can can be stronger going forward. And so I guess what we'd say to that is, is a couple of things. First, you know we, we do run kind of forward earnings indicators, forward earnings estimates, and those estimates, those models have been pretty good at predicting the events so far, and those models are saying that there's going to be more downside to, to consensus than, than what the consensus expects. I think if you look at some of those larger cap names that have been outperforming, their actual earnings growth has not been particularly strong. And even for the market overall, earnings growth is rapidly approaching kind of flat year over year. So this is a market that even in a still a pretty strong nominal GDP environment is struggling to grow overall earnings. And we think that will get more difficult as you move ahead as the market confronts the lagged effect of rate hikes and the lagged effect of, of some further tightening in, in bank credit conditions.
2: So, Andrew, hi, this is Neil. Uh, can you explain um, exactly how the long and variable lags work? I mean, because... Um you know, we've been hearing this argument now for, you know, really since since last year. And, um, you know, I would expect to see significant slowing in, in credit areas of the econ- credit sensitive areas of the economy. Um, but that's not what we're seeing. I mean, it, you know, uh, housing, autos. I mean, they look like they've been doing a little bit better. So, can you explain, you know, um, how how that how that will actually work when it's been you know, several quarters now that they've been hiking, and, and some of these credit-sensitive areas are, are actually picking up.
7: Yeah, so uh, look, I, I think that's the challenge. The, the challenge with long and variable legs is, is that they're long and they're variable. And so if, if we think about our estimates for that, we think that uh, rate hikes, you feel the full effect, maybe with a 12-month leg, uh, which means that if we had you know, rate hikes starting at the beginning of last year, you are only now starting to feel the full effect uh, of those rate hikes in the U.S. A- and Europe. So, so we've not yet felt the full effect. The full effect is still to come. Moreover, if we think about the real policy rate, right, the, the interest rate relative to inflation, that is still uh, going through some of its larger, largest increases over the next several months as inflation finally falls and we think the Fed and the ECB keep rates high. So I think the first element is, is we haven't yet seen enough time uh, to see the full effect of those rate hikes play through the economy. And we actually haven't seen the full effect of rates relative to inflation. Now, I think as it relates to the more credit s- sensitive sectors of the economy, again, I, I think that's pretty fascinating because again, as you know, we've talked about at the opening, the equity market overall is very strong. The most credit sensitive parts of the market, say the Russell 2000, small caps, more cyclical stocks, have really struggled. Uh, Commercial real estate, credit sensitive has really struggled. So I think we are starting to see some of the impact of that tighter policy play out. It hasn't played out at the overall market cap level, but I think it's playing out below the surface. And I think we still have some of that to come, which is a reason why we think growth decelerates further into the second half of the year.
1: Andrew, just quickly, how does this idea of a deceleration in earnings growth pair with a soft landing?
7: So I think they're actually quite compatible. You know, again, if we think about the types of of forecasts that we're we're seeing, we saw a a market and earnings really outperform the economy over the last 18 months. And, And I think one way of thinking about our estimates is that in the U.S., uh, earnings in the market underperform the economy somewhat as you go forward. And especially because I think you we think earnings are much more geared and much more linked to nominal GDP growth, which is decelerating sharply, maybe more so than than real growth. Uh, another part of this that's important is the labor market. You know, I think if you have a soft landing, I think you're inherently talking about fewer job losses than you'd have in a recession. Well, fewer job losses is great for workers, but it might be more of a challenge for margins if the top line is slowing and costs aren't being pulled back in the same way.
0: Andrew Sheets of Morgan Stanley, thank you so much. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio.
4: Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time.
1: One person who's gotten it right considerably, and every single time, was Dan Ives, who is Senior Equity Al- Analyst over at Wedbush, who has come out with one positive prognostication after another. How much do the bears hate you?
8: Oh, I mean, it's it's kind of been a bear hate party. And, I, like, and, and, and ultimately, look, I appreciate it. And obviously, like, look, some of the smartest people I know are bears. I just think it's something here where... The shorts, the bears, they came out of their caves last year, you know, and obviously feeling really good going into the year. And My view is just, it was gonna be a lot better than fear in terms of overall tax spending, But it was our view, and we've talked about it, that it's the most transformational trend we've seen in tech since the late 90s. And I think you just can't fight that. And that's why I think names like Microsoft, NVIDIA, Apple, and others continue to go higher.
1: I have to say that some of my best friends are bears, was always sort of the uh, prelude to something negative (laughs) that's pretty significant. I'm curious, though, after the announcement yesterday, you're still doubling down on some of the artificial intelligence uh, embarkments of Apple saying that this is where they're going next. A lot of other people didn't necessarily take that away from the conference. What sure. gives you confidence that that's kind of the next phase of their explosion in valuation and growth? And
8: I think that's typical, right? I mean, for Apple, for many years, I mean, for the last decade, there's many people I know, they've they, they've sort of fought it because they'll go to a conference, they'll just see a leaf. They don't see the forest or the trees. And I think essentially what Cupertino and Cook are building here. It's, it's another ecosystem within the App Store and it all because Lisa right now there's a battle a game of thrones for developers Between Google Microsoft in terms of what we're seeing in terms of this 800 billion dollar AI revolution Apple understands that that's why they have the gold install base and they have the developers This is the first step on a broader strategy really to build another moat
5: for developers and consumers. So, uh, Dan, uh, it's obviously you've the uh, big five, big seven, however many stocks you you want to target uh, who have really uh, capitalized uh, on this last number of months of AI momentum. Who among sort of the second tier of, of maybe those companies that haven't yet fully realized the potential uh, do you see as being most attractive first? And then the second question is, what industries in specific do you think are likely to benefit over the next year or two? Yeah, a great question because
8: I think right now, okay, the first derivative, the New York City cab driver was Microsoft, Nvidia. But so so now it's like who the second, third derivatives? I think ultimately Salesforce is going to be a big derivative that no one's talking about. I think you have names like Palantir, which is another on the on the AI front. And I think what you're really starting to see right now, from a cybersecurity perspective. It's really as more and more moves to the cloud, more moves to AI, you're going to have huge benefits there. Names like Palo Alto, Fortinet and others. That's why I believe this is not just today. It's five, seven, ten stocks. When we look out over the next one, two, three years. I think this is really what I view as like a 1995 moment, an iPhone moment, relative to where we see it over the coming years. Obviously macro aware in terms of what we're seeing in that, but I could tell you from talking to developers, enterprises, what we see in spending, I continue to view as a green light for overall tech stocks.
1: So this is a faith-based kind of bet though. At a certain point, right, this is faith that AI is going to be a transformational moment more than, say, uh, the adoption of $3,500, you know, know, augmented reality sets that people are maybe not going to buy their children for the holidays. I'm just saying personally, but I'm just wondering (laughs) from your perspective, you know, it's not about one product. It's about sort of engaging in a whole new way of doing business and getting out front so that different companies can use your technology, software, whatever you have in a way that transforms the way they do business correct
8: you know i think it was faith-based till the guidance heard around the world the nvidia the four billion dollar raise that's where basically all the bears went into hibernation mode for the winner <laughs> and that really is what really changed everything for tech because that that was the numbers and now in redmond we're going to see it Google, we're going to see these next few quarters. And that's why I can tell you a lot of investors, they're not looking at the next one to two quarters. They're looking out over the next one, two years. And that's why this really created the opportunity in terms of a, a market where I think many is still yelling fire in a crowd theater. What do you say to the clients who are
5: worried about valuations?
8: So it's the same clients I've talked to over the last 22 years where I, I'll sit down there like on transformational tech names on the Amazons, the Googles, the Teslas. If you look out over the next year on transformational tech companies, you'll miss every transformational tech stock the last 20 years and the next 20 years. It's no different than coming out of 2000 draft six round out of Michigan Brady, <laughs> that first camp being like i just don't know if it's going to work so i think that's sort of my view in terms of how you have to look at these transformational tech names
1: so from your perspective, Julian, are you sort of buying into this? Do you feel like you kind of have to be overweight tech even after the rally?
5: So we've taken a little bit of a different tack, right? So so for us, we realize that the momentum aspect, whether it's 1995, and frankly, if you think about it, if Dan's right, that this is 1995 and not 98 or 99, we have a lot further to run, uh, or if it's later in, in the cycle, we like the kinds of names that have actually shown both price momentum, earnings momentum, and for us, very importantly, in a a momentum-driven market, still defensive positioning. Okay, and, and by that, whether it's uh, you know, a, a bid to puts or high short interest, and actually you get a number of sort of the second and third tier uh, technology names that, that Dan mentioned, um, as well as actually other industrial names that may or may not end up using AI more directly in the immediate term.
1: When you talk about positioning, that is what a lot of people talk about. The overweights right now for the big tech names have gotten fairly extreme. Suddenly everyone's piling in because as much as the bears might be more vocal and the ones reaching out to you to say, no way, and with all sorts of hate mail with lots of expletives, most people are saying, all right, we buy it, we're in. How much is that going to potentially challenge the ability for these shares to really rally, even if people buy into this story?
8: Look, but I still think, institutionally speaking, many have been sitting on the sidelines with their six reasons to be negative, and now they're like... Maybe they could focus on the weather, hurricane season as a reason to be negative. I'm just trying to think about like other reasons to be negative. I but so so I, I, I think what's really starting to happen now is you're looking at the derivatives. You look at Apple from a sum of the parts perspective. I know the stock that continues to go much higher. You look at – now, the macro is not rosy and rainbows. We know that. But I think what's starting to happen here, when you look out the next four, six quarters, if you pick, look, there's going to be fakes. There's going to be names that basically like ultimately fake it. And then ultimately, that's the froth that will come off. But if you pick the winners, you pick what I have used, the fundamental names to really own in-cloud, cybersecurity, and yeah. AI, I think that's how you win here.
1: Ten seconds. When does Apple become a $4 trillion company?
8: Look, I think, I believe right now you could rationalize $3.5 trillion. I think by 2025, we're looking at a $4 trillion or sooner. Dan Ives of Wedbush.
1: Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, and this is Bloomberg.
0: The Bloomberg Sustainable
2: Business Summit returns to London on April 25th for a solution-driven look at the sustainable business and finance landscape, looking at the latest trends in ESG regulations,
0: supply chain innovation, and transition finance. Speakers include leaders from CDP, Emirates Environment Group, TNFD, CTRACE, COA, and more. Summit advisors include City and Schneider Electric. Visit BloombergLive.com/slash SBS 2024 to learn more.